Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. Out there. That away. The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time girdled William Shatner impersonator, Andrew Raphael. Spark. Can you see my belly fat? <laughs> <laughs> and in the latest episode of our show, we'll be taking a very, very slow ride on the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> As we join Kirk, Spock, Bones and crew on their search to find the fabled clitoris. <laughs> That's right, we're discussing Star Trek The Motion Picture. But is this a triumphant return to Starfleet? Or are these two of the longest hours of our life that we'll never get back? Find out after the trailer. Thrust us ahead, Mr. Sulu. Take us out. Mr. Spock, every minute brings that object closer to Earth. I need you. I am convinced we are inside a living machine. Shall I go to battle station, sir? Insatiable curiosity. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. <laughs> I hope we got this one off to a good start. I hope so, too. Star Trek The Motion Picture follows Captain Kirk, who after exhausting the sheer variety of pussy in the known universe, takes to space to go where no man has gone before and fuck a sentient energy cloud. (laughs) From the director of Sound of Music, Robert Wise, comes the return of Star Trek, as a host of original series characters find themselves on a new adventure to prevent all life on Earth from being eradicated by an aggressive energy cloud. On their journey, they will learn to embrace their human flaws, find joy in their emotional bonds, and finally band together to solve the mystery of how to bring a living machine to orgasm. (laughs) So, Andy, why have we chosen Star Trek The Motion Picture for discussion on Popcorn Digest? And And I should also clarify which version of Star Trek The Motion Picture will we be discussing most. Yeah, I mean, it's been on our list for an awful long time, and... Um, the recent say, re-release of the director's edition uh, has made it all the more pertinent uh, that we cover mm-hmm. this one. Because we have a lot of the Star Trek films on our list, but we generally like to cover the ones that get talked about the least because you know most people generally tend to talk about wrath of khan yeah which is a star trek film that they've been remaking ever since the wrath of khan came out yeah (laughs) and um you know there's only so much you can talk about that film so we tend to look for the ones that have been perceived with uh, more a more mixed reception 
uh, yeah. I would say. And yeah, with the release of the 4K Director's Edition, it was definitely an appropriate one to cover, I'd say. No, most certainly. And to be honest as well, with regards to Star Trek, I did not watch the motion picture for such a long time just because mm-hmm. of its somewhat maligned reputation. Now, I will say somewhat because by the time that I finally got around to watching it, it did have its fandom behind it now, but it's still something of a... Uh, stepchild of the Star Trek family. Yeah. It's certainly improved over the years in terms of how Trekkies respond to this film because at the time it was like it's just not Star Trek or Mm. as um, other people have called it, the slow motion picture. The Star Trek, the motionless picture. (laughs) (laughs) It's just too slow for its own good and it's more akin to 2001 A Space Odyssey than it is Star Mm -hmm. Trek. Yeah. One thing I have realised in this... uh, on this episode is that i don't think i have ever seen the theatrical version i've only ever seen the director's core mm. and that's probably worked in the film's favor for me as well yeah yeah because i think when the director's edition originally came out in 2001 i think that's when it's critical appraisal started you know when it's, it's critical reception started to be really reevaluated. yeah and it ended up being talked about in uh, in a much more positive way than it had been previously because I remember when I was first aware of the film back in the early 90s when my dad bought it on video in its original theatrical version it was always known as the slow one yeah it's always been perceived as that odd one out film it's it's definitely on its own and yeah it wasn't until that 2001 DVD release of that new version that people started talking about it in a much more positive way yeah on a first really for the podcast i actually came across a program online that tracks the imdb ratings over the years so you can see how a film has changed since imdb began rating films i think mm-hmm. in 2004 and that is reflected really in terms of if you think of the director's cut coming out in 2001, its reputation has improved. I'll go into that more with the stats and facts, but yeah, it has yeah. certainly improved quite significantly mm-hmm. over the past 20 years. Now, one thing I do want to say about this, we do normally go quite deep on some episodes in regards to the context for films, but oh my God, if we go into the context for this film and the making of this film, it, it would be the entirety of the episode. We would be deep inside Vija. We would be deep inside the orifice. (laughs) You know, I I watched it with my wife yesterday and I couldn't help but add my own lines every now and again. Like, we are orbiting the clitoral hood. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of that kind of imagery in this film that is just excellent, really, for uh, primed for for commentary. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, so we're going to go into the context, but we're going to keep it light because really we want the discussion for this episode to be more about the film itself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I guess this begins with phase two and the idea of the original cast coming back for a brand new Star Trek adventure, but on a TV level. Yeah, well, I I suppose you can really start it, um, it with the cancellation of the original series in a way because it when it, during its original run it wasn't like a hugely popular show and it wasn't until it was syndicated in the early 70s that the show really started mm. to take off. Well it was actually cancelled due to its low rating which Yeah, is- yeah, and it had very low Nielsen ratings. And yeah, and it wasn't until it was syndicated after cancellation that it actually started to become popular. Uh, And that's how you get things like Star Trek, the animated series and things like that. And yeah, the production of this film seemed to yo-yo between it being a a low-budget feature film to a mid-budget feature film and then 
it's now a TV series again, and then it's a big budget feature film. <laughs> so it's... And boys are a big budget feature film for the day and age. Although, actually, looking at the... Um, if you read the Wikipedia page, which is about 300 pages long, <laughs> it's probably one of the longest production sections for a film that I've ever read on Wikipedia. It's, it's actually quite extensive. Yeah. There's things when we talk about Star Trek Phase 2 that um, some very unclever accountancy was done uh, which explains a lot because I thought that the the budget that's advertised was the budget for the film we see, when in fact that is not the case at all. And um, yeah, I'll go into that a little bit further as we start talking about Star Trek Phase 2. To, to give this away straight up, it said that the final budget of the film was around $44 million, which was grossly over what they wanted to spend on this. But something to kind of compare and contrast to is that Star Wars, a new well, Star Wars, a new hope, or Star Wars as it was released back then, um, released in 1977, two years before, mm-hmm. and that has an 11 million dollar budget. Yeah, so it kind of shows just how above and beyond they have gone with this film, and I would say even the um, the budget that they originally wanted to spend. I think they they allocated, which it does include many of like issues with Phase Two. The fact that they had built sets, many unused sets for Phase Two, mm. that simply did not go to use on this film. Yeah, and that is folded into the budget as well. Like, all of that development cost is folded in. The thing is that, that baffles me because obviously we'll talk about Phase Two now. But the thing is that baffled me is why they would advertise the film with the budget of $44 million, when in fact $18 million of that is actually for a show that is completely separate yes. to the film that the, the film evolved from but used very little of, I don't understand why that is rolled into the budget. Why could that not be written off as a separate thing and then actually have the film's actual budget, which is $26 million, which is still yeah. quite a big budget for 1979. But of course it's still a little bit more on the edge of normalcy because I'm just looking at the uh, budget of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is probably more comparable than Star Wars. Yes. And that was $19.4 million. So mm-hmm. it's a bit higher, but you're talking two years on and the film is probably bigger in scope than Close Encounters anyway. Yes. So it's it's melting my brain at the moment why they decided to advertise it as being $44 million. It reminds me of um, that Superman Returns issue that they had where the Superman Returns budget is astronomical. It was probably the highest of the time, but mm. that was because they had to factor in 10 years of, or 20 years, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, of development, you know, development of other yeah. other films, yeah, um, included in that, whereas the actual budget of the film was far, far, far less. Mm. Even though they did spend, what was it, something like stupid, like six million on an opening that never got used. That film, that's definitely a film for another time. Really is. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about it for a long time about Superman Returns. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, so it sounded like they were thinking about um, a low-budget Star Trek film. It was called, like, The God Thing, or something like that. It was... Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's actually called The God Kirk. Thing. That was what it was called. It was the called God the, Thing. The God Thing. I don't know why we didn't mention this when we were talking about Star Trek V, because some of it sounded like Star Trek V actually picked up some of the ideas from that script. But actually, some of it has also seeped its way into the motion picture. So um, yeah. it's one of those scripts where it's been cannibalized, like some of the ideas. Because it's like the the crew are having a clash with a godlike entity that actually turns out to be an alien. But the way that the alien's depicted is very much like Vija, but 
that yeah. whole twist. A horny energy cloud. But the twist of it actually not being God, but being an alien is actually what Star Trek V ended up doing. So, And I would say Star Trek V, as we mentioned in that podcast, Star Trek V is the film that probably the motion picture most resembles. It's like Star Trek V is the low-budget version of the motion picture. Mm. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> so. it is. Maybe Star Trek V was the film that would have resulted if they had made a low-budget Star Trek film in the mid-70s. Star Trek V is like the be-kind, rewind version of this film. Yeah. You know, like uh, that film where um, uh, Jack Black accidentally erases all of his... Uh, all of the videos <laughs> yeah, in his blockbuster, <laughs> so he has to re- recreate them using cardboard. <laughs> this is that Star Trek Five is the, that version of this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's another version of the film called Planet of the Titans as well, which was also more liked by the executives, but was still uh, rejected in the end. I think this was just prior to the release of Star Wars. I think the actual film, the film version of Star Trek, was cancelled some point in the mid in mid seventy six. Uh, and that's yeah. when they decided to um, pursue a, a TV series again, like a continuation TV series rather than a film. So, yeah, that brings us to um, Star Trek Phase 2, which, reading about today, I actually thought it was a completely new cast. I thought it was more on the lines of Next Generation. Oh, but, yeah. in fact, it was more of a combination job between having yes, members yeah. of the original cast and then some new cast members to replace people that wouldn't come back or were in reduced mm-hmm. roles. I mean, the big one, really, in terms of cast members who were very reluctant to return is Leonard Nimoy, yeah, yeah. who felt that he was owed some royalties from Star Trek, the original series, that simply had not been given to him. So he avowed from ever putting on the, the, the ears again. I think this, the, the quote he said is that he'd never put on the ears again. Yeah, it was mainly down to his image and and likeness being used for advertising and, and that he didn't know anything about yeah. it, <laughs> basically. So I mean, um, I, I do feel like there's a um, there's an interesting history there for Leonard Nimoy's background with Spock and his kind of like struggle with that character on a personal level and being identified primarily as Spock, despite him, you know, having many other talents as well. I mean, that is shown in, in his books he released. Everybody always points to them. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I am not Spock or something like and that. And then the it, second one's called I am Spock. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of a uh, Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like you have these actors that are primarily identified for playing a particular character. They always seem to go through this kind of middle period where they have an existential crisis grappling with that before coming around to embracing it again once more. And that seems to have really taken place with Leonard Nimoy as well. He was one that, one, was not going to be returning for Phase 2, and two, they were struggling to coax to come on board the motion picture once it turned into a movie. And all this from someone who uh, had a hit record with Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. We should play a a little clip of Bilbo Baggins (laughs) under this. Yeah. Oh, what a song. Yeah. What a video. Yes. <laughs> in the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Oh, there's a really good documentary on Netflix about Leonard Numa, actually. Made Is by, that the one made by, by his, his son? son. Yeah, it's really good, actually, that one. It really 
paints a good, like, a, a really interesting picture of the man. Very like hardworking individual. Um, sometimes a bit too much. It kind of caused quite a few problems with his family and stuff like that. But yeah, it's uh, definitely, a, definitely a fascinating watch that I recommend. I can't remember the name of it. What it. Like, what it's called i think it's got it's definitely got spock in the title anyway <laughs> well funny story as well i mean i say a funny story like you know like how people say as well that they know where they were when a particular person died mm. like they can remember it very prominently well i really remember where i was when leonard nimoy died yeah i remember like looking at my phone and finding out about it now i remember it though primarily because i was very very ill at the time and i'd accidentally just shit myself in a mcdonald's <laughs> But, but I do at least remember where I was yeah. when Leonard Nimoy dies. I mean, I was very ill. I'd shit myself in a McDonald's, yeah. and I was in Prague. Right, yeah, yeah. So it was a particularly memorable point in my life. I would say memorably low point in my life, yeah, question mark. Yeah. Imagine having just shit yourself because you're so ill. <laughs> And then you look at your phone and find out that one of your heroes has died. Yeah, I think, to be honest, these days, I think most of the time when you, if you ask somebody that question, like, where were you when you heard about some such and such person died, it would generally be bathroom related because that's when you do most of your news reading when you're on the toilet. So, um, <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, because I was, I was trying to think, oh, when did I find out, like, you know, one of my heroes is David Bowie, and I'm pretty sure I was on mm -hmm. the toilet in the Apple store uh, yeah. <laughs> when I found that out. Um, and uh, even, like, someone, like, random, like Steve Irwin. I remember I found out that Steve Irwin had died when I was in the shower in New York. All yeah. bathroom-related. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah what is, what is it with us in i this? don't know <laughs> our sophisticated toilet humor <laughs> yeah i'm glad that yours are all bathroom related but i only have one of shitting myself because yeah. if they were all shitting myself then i've got an issue here i've got a deadly <laughs> you find out what are your heroes died you shit yourself <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or when i shit myself one of my heroes dies oh. you know it's the cursed arsehole gotta make sure we keep you off the curry then yeah <laughs> Here he comes, Gareth Green with the cursed arsehole. Oh. <laughs> Harry Potter and the cursed arsehole. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was yeah. a nice little diversion then. Whether or not it makes a final cut is another it thing will. entirely. <laughs> it will. <laughs> it always does. That's what people listen to us for anyway. They don't want to hear about the films. I know, yeah, it is, yeah. Is it for our deep knowledge of film? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> us comparing films to dicks. <laughs> I've got, I've got a theory about that. I've got a theory about Star Trek: The Motion Picture to dick. I am intrigued. <laughs> yeah. So, Star Trek Phase Two, which is one of those great lost TV series, and it ended up being very influential to Star Trek, probably for the next ten years, because many of its sets ideas and storylines ended up being recycled for both the movies the actual tv series ended up being made in the late 80s and early 90s and also yeah some of its character ideas and and um and storylines so i think at least two of them ended up being i mean obviously the t the pilot episode for uh, for phase two ended up being the film that we're about to talk about, but also two other yeah. stuff. Because I think they wrote like, didn't they? They wrote thirteen episodes of the series, and two of those ended up being rewritten and uh, redone as Next Generation episodes ten years later. I think one is the child. I can't remember the name of the other one. 
But yeah, so yeah, very influential series that didn't get off the ground. But the phase two and the motion picture are, are very much tied together. There's no gap between them, which might explain that budget issue. Yeah. They are still kind of separate in a way. And also, although um, Star Trek The Motion Picture, well, ended up being essentially an exploration of that very first pilot episode that they were going to make for Star Trek Phase 2, it's, um, its inspirations actually come from an original series episode. Yeah, yeah. I can't actually remember the title of the episode, but I remember watching it and thinking, well, this is... This is very familiar. <laughs> I think the pilot episode was going to be called In Thy Image. Yeah. And one of the writers, uh, Alan Dean Foster, um, who ended up writing the treatment for the pilot, and I think he ended up with a story credit on the final film. Well, one thing I wanted to mention him for is that he wrote the original Alien trilogy novelizations. Mm. This is a, a writer who's famous for making a great many novelizations yeah. of sci-fi films. And um, I wanted to mention him because they were very prominent in my upbringing because sometimes, you know, it wasn't always available to me to watch the alien films. So I had to read the books instead <laughs> at times of my life. And yeah, I just wanted to, to bring mention of him that this is one of the rare occasions where he actually has a story credit on a film and not because he did the novelization of that film. Yeah, so it was going to be a, a pilot episode called In Thy Image. And yeah, I think another 12 episodes were written by various people. But yeah, it was a weird amalgamation of old and new. And mm. the main omission was was Leonard Nimoy, but there was also a lot of contention as to whether William Shatner was going to continue in the series after its yeah. initial 13 episodes. So that's why the um, the character of Will, Willa Decker was created for that show. So the characters of Decker and Nalia were actually originated on Star Trek Phase 2, and especially with Decker in, in mind to take over as the lead if Shatner decided that he wanted more money, <laughs> basically. Um, and <laughs> yeah. after that initial 13 episodes, they would either reduce his role, renegotiate, or just write him out entirely yeah. with the idea that Decker would take over. It just shows you as well, just in regards to the producer's approach to those characters. I'm glad that they came around to the idea of uh, making the series about the original series cast because they deserved it. But it seems like it took them a while to come to that conclusion. And even with Kirk being involved in Phase 2, it was always a kind of, yeah, but we'll kind of write them out of it at the nearest point we can. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's just a lot of toing and froing, and uh, even though the series was, was a, a hit by this point, um, a lot of unease as to what to do yeah. as regards anything new. I mean, they only have to look at the cinematic landscape at the time as well. And as you say, you have films like uh, Close Encounters, 2001 Space Odyssey, you have Star Wars out there. The landscape of sci-fi has changed remarkably since the original series was on television. Yeah. yeah. And they're at a crossroads as well. What do we make this film about? Do we do it in the same vein as, say, Close Encounters? 2001 a space odyssey or do we make it a more pulpy fun special effects driven adventure like star wars yeah yeah in a way as well it reminds me of the very first and maybe second season of star trek the next generation and they yeah. faced a lot of the same issues then as yeah. well in regards to what the series is where are we taking it and unfortunately i think a lot of those issues do fall at the feet of gene roddenberry and his um 
constant butting of heads with his writing crew. He's always very rigid in his rules and regulations regarding what yeah. Star Trek is and should be. It's a strange thing in a way, because obviously Gene Roddenberry's the creator of the series, but in a way became it almost its greatest enemy <laughs> because yeah. um, he had such a rigid view and some of his ideas just didn't work very well, uh, which is no. why you end up with things like Star Trek and the Next Generation series one especially because boy that is a mess yeah i mean you could do a whole podcast about an encounter at farpoint <laughs> and all the <laughs> shitty decisions that they made and and just things like oh I, I watched like quite a lot of the first season uh about a year ago and oh jesus stupid decisions like trying to make the ferengi like the main villains and it's just like no yeah it doesn't work at all. I mean, even the like the thing that became the main villain of the series, the Borg, was something that they kind of just accidentally happened across during yeah. that first series. Yeah, a real mess. Although, like going back to Phase Two, there are things in that that ended up influencing um, the characters of the Next Generation. So, the, yeah, the characters of Decker and Ilea kind of ended up being rewritten as Riker and Troy. Yeah. So you've got that, and again, some of those episodes ended up being rewritten. Uh, and reincorporated into the next generation, which ended up being Star Trek Phase 2 in all but name. The crazy thing, but because uh, immediately following the release of Close Encounters and the uh, box office success of that film, because I think that made about $300 million on a $19.4 million budget. Yeah. And they just had a complete about turn. Uh, apparently, yeah, so just two and a half weeks before the start of production on Phase 2, like the start of filming... They cancelled the series, <laughs> so, <laughs> so and and decided to make a film instead with a bigger budget. Well, it seems like they were really flying by the seat of their pants yeah. as well, because when it actually came to the production of the film, they were shooting it with just two acts completed, essentially, with two-thirds of the screenplay. They said that the last, like, 30 or 40 pages just had not been written or finalised at that point. Yeah. Um, I watched a great documentary. I, I say a great. There was a great part in this very short documentary about the making of the director's cut, where William Shatner, who... You know, a man without ego, as many people know him. <laughs> uh, if there's one thing he doesn't like, it's certainly not confidence in himself. Yeah. But he goes through, like, this whole speech about how he solved all of the motion pictures problems. And he's, he's like, I was, I was on set one day, and I talked to Leonard about this idea for the ending. And I was like, and this moves into that, and that moves into this. And then suddenly we find ourselves here, and this is how it ends. And Leonard Nimoy was like, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> You have to tell the director, Robert Wise, about this. So he said, I took Robert Wise to one side. I explained it to him. And he was like, that's fantastic. You have to, We have to do this. Let's get Gene in. And you can tell him again. And he said, by the time he told Gene, he was quite tired. So I didn't put... He said, it mustn't have come across as well. Because Gene went, uh, you know what? I'll think about it. And then they never did it. And then <laughs> I think he gets asked, so what was that idea? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like oh. one of the best nothing journeys ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, oh, we're yeah, talking okay. about a man where in a Wikipedia article, they can just casually mention that he'd started wearing a corset in the mid-70s. <laughs> By this time, Chatner had started wearing a corset. No elaboration needed. We're not going to elaborate on this. It's like, no, it's William Shatner. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got great hair in this film. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost TJ Hooker, but not quite. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, he went into full TJ Hooker mode by Star Trek Two uh, when he was making that series, but it's it's on its way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's certainly getting there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has nothing to do with his hair from the original series, anyway. I mean, it's changed color for a start. It, it really looks nothing like it. It's, yeah. it's like it's it's got like this kind of like puffiness to it. Yeah, you feel like it could just lift entirely off his head, like Lego hair. <laughs> You know, yeah. like there's yeah. just a, a little clip inside where it clips onto his head. Yeah, I mean, and also by the time you get to the uh, the retrospective interviews, it's just full on toupee. It's like there's no there's no. Oh yeah, yeah. It. It's just a flat toupee. It reminds me of the of the toupee that Sean Connery wears in Thunderball, where it's yeah, just I was completely that. flat. Yeah. The award for that, I mean, this is a complete Bond aside, but yeah, the award for the worst wig in Sean Connery James Bond goes to Thunderball quite easily. That's the one where he wears the afro, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's not as bad as um, uh, You Only Live Twice. That's fantastic, yeah. That's another episode for another day. Yeah, th- so they cancel phase two, very, very last minute, which I think is a reason why the budgets for both these projects ha- have been combined rather foolishly and they basically just go yeah we'll take this pilot script flesh it out a bit and we'll we'll make a film out of that yeah chuck a load of money at it i think the main thing is that they wanted to be involved with this sci-fi big budget movie revolution but they didn't want to be seen as as followers so i think that's the reason why it became a very much accelerated production why we ended up with a theatrical release that which you know robert wise described as being unfinished and star trek i mean have been like in the years since it had been released the years since that very low nielsen rating had gone on to be incredibly influential on mm. the sci-fi genre i mean you can see why when you look at the people involved in star trek the original series and some of the writers that they had working on episodes i mean everybody from like richard matheson to like harlan ellison or yeah. whatever, um, that kind of pedigree of sci-fi i mean even this even star trek the motion picture had um isaac Asimov as a scientific consultant yeah. and that shows you the level in which they're trying to attain on on, on a sci-fi level mm. I, I would say as well like one of the things i wanted to mention in regards to the making of is that this is also one of the first katzenberg oh yeah just about mention him our good friend jeffrey <laughs> yeah jeffrey katzenberg this is one of his first real like um he's not listed as a producer i don't think but he's certainly i don't know i don't think he's actually credited in the film yeah he's not credited as a producer but he's working with paramount at the time yeah because it, it sounded like he was working in the the television department and this was his bridge into being yeah. in the feature area but yeah it sounded like he was the one that was pulling a lot of the strings and getting people to do things and stuff like that this was jeffrey showing that his usefulness for better or worse yeah with the mechanics of film production and getting things off the ground and solving issues and that does seem to be something that you know has it was one of his virtues Along with other things, including his crippling addiction to Diet Coke. I cannot relate. <laughs> Yours is Pepsi Max. It is It is today. Yeah, but you don't walk into a room expecting there to be a Diet Coke there. Like, uh, you know, no. placed for you. <laughs> no, I'm just at that point in my addiction where I'm hiding it in the house. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Katzenberg is probably 49% Diet Coke now. And I'm, you know, at a push 45, so yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're okay. But yeah, I'd have to look, I'm pretty sure I ran the whole credits last night i don't think he's in the credits so i think it's much more of a shadowy role that he played although yeah. he's very prominently featured in the documentaries so i don't i don't know well it's like the early days of jeffrey katzenberg and michael eisner they were like kind of like completely rejigged paramount which is how they got the uh 
essentially got the job yeah. moving over to to Disney eventually. I mean, they did a fucking great job, to be honest, if you think about it. Because mm-hmm. if you think about all the films that were made during their tenure, uh, you know, you've got the launch of Star Trek as a film series, Indiana Jones. Yep. You know, the list goes on. And they really rejuvenated Paramount at that point because... Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those studios in the early 70s were um, on the last legs, you know, things like Fox. Yeah. And it was things like Star Wars and Close Encounters, uh, Jaws. I mean, this film to a lesser extent, but, um, you know, all those kind of films really helped to prop up these failing film studios, which were on their last legs and gave them a major boost. Because without those films, we we probably still wouldn't have those studios today. Definitely not. Yeah. Because that studio system had collapsed in the 60s. Because you can't end it up with, like, the auteur thing in the 70s, which were made by usually smaller yeah. production companies and things like that. Yeah, the big budget films were, were going out the window. So things like this were seen as, like, the saviour of of the studio system for better or worse i'd say a great book to read about that whole period of time in which you have the 60s and 70s rise of the auteur and then eventually the uh, domination of the blockbuster there's a great book called easy rider raging bull by peter biskind and that goes through all of that but i will say that he does have nothing but contempt for (laughs) for the the modern day blockbuster and its uh, humble beginnings back here in the 1970s yeah yeah but yeah, so going back to Jeffrey Katzenberg, he was the one that, that managed to get Leonard Nimoy to come back. I mean, it ended up being him getting on a on the floor and begging, basically, <laughs> Yeah. To, to do so. I think we even mentioned this when we were talking about Star Trek V, there was always like a bit of animosity slash back and forth between Nimoy and, and Shatner yeah. as to who got, you know the same amount of pay and all that kind of stuff. Well, the way that Katzenberg tells the story is that he got on his knees and begged Nimoy to be in the film, and then he did. The way Nimoy appears to have told the story is that, oh, they decided to pay him the royalties he was owed, so yeah. he jumped on board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you look at it, two two different kinds of stories. There. Yeah, I think Nimoy's <laughs> is probably the most accurate, to be honest, because uh, he's very yeah. kind of down-to-earth in that regard. I mean, if you're going to have a, a story told three ways by William Shatner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Leonard Nimoy, I'm pretty sure nine <laughs> times out of ten, Leonard Nimoy's is going to be the more accurate of the three. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of tell as well that they were having issues with Nimoy uh, in regards to whether or not he was going to be involved. You can see it with his involvement in the film as a character. Mm. I mean, I I like this, and we'll get into it later as well. I like that all of the characters of this film start off in completely different places and kind of find their way back to the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. But he is one that is a very late addition to the Enterprise. He only has really like one scene prior, and then it's practically halfway through the film when suddenly he's he's aboard yeah yeah you can see how he was almost written out of the film completely and how that could have taken place in the end i think he became a an integral point to how the conclusion comes about which is a, it's a good job he was there yeah he becomes like the uh other than the probe the other kind of mouthpiece for vj and and as like the, yeah. the liaison in a way yeah i do like the journey of spock in this because it's like he's doing his vulcan thing and it's like he has a calling to yeah. uh, meet with this Vija consciousness. This Vija fellow. He's like, he realized <laughs> it's the, the world's biggest vulva. Uh, <laughs> and he wants to meet with it. And I've jo- got to fuck it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I need to mind meld with this yeah. <laughs> giant clitoris. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Again, another shocking twist and where we get to see Spock visibly orgasm on screen. Yeah. <laughs> where he's overloaded with information during a mind meld. He's crying about it afterwards. But um <laughs> I mean, that's some people do though. Yeah. Some people do cry afterwards. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's just one of those things. It's like emo- emotional over. Uh, you're emotionally overloaded. Yeah, emotional damage. <laughs> the way I'm saying it, I'm going to put out there. I'm not somebody that cries after orgasm because oh, no, it no. sounds like I do. By the way that I'm like being very defensive about it. <laughs> oh, you know, some people do. I have a friend of a friend that cries after having sex. Oh, all right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. That's a, that's an aside for another day, for another episode. Yeah, it's amazing in itself that they ended up with the original cast on this film, really, and they have more than the original cast. They even have like the the fact that Yeoman Rand returns, which is a great little addition as well. It's somebody who was in the, the like the very first season of the original series and was kind of pushed out by the studio execs at the time, the uh, the TV executives. And then we also have like Nurse Chapel as well returning, which uh, the, I like these little fan favorite touches by just giving them screen time again, giving them their moments. Yeah, I mean, I think these were things that um, Shatner and Nimoy lobbied for was to get her back. I mean, not Major Barrett specifically, because obviously she was married to Gene Roddenberry, but um, yeah, but Yeoman Rand, because she did been in a really bad way. Uh, since her sort of ejection from the series. I can't remember if it had something to do with Gene Roddenberry himself as well. For somebody who was so progressively minded in regards to his um, outlook for society in general for the future, he was a sexist pig when it came to women. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember if her leaving had something to do with him specifically. Maybe her skirt wasn't short enough. Probably. There's little touches like that in the film. Which, yeah, it is very much a bridge between the Star Trek film series that we'd we'd know uh, and was more established with Star Trek 2, but also the original series. It's really stuck in the middle yeah. between the two things, uh, which is probably why it feels like such an odd one out, because it is like a very much a transitional film. There are things in it that were carried on. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing that I think was carried on from this film was the engine room and all yes, the um, yeah. and all the suits that they wore in the engine room. They were definitely carried on for Star Trek Two and beyond. And I think the bridge was was kept, but then redesigned and things like that. Yeah, it certainly got another a new a paint job. And obviously William Shatner's hair. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it needs more. Pump. I think also as well, like uh, William Chatner's acting style as well. I'm pretty sure um, Emma Watson must have taken, uh, must have been to the <laughs> William Chatner School of uh, of acting because they both have that kind of um, cadence. Well, they have the acting style where they're just on the edge of orgasm, just on the edge, <laughs> <laughs> just about. But they're just like it's like edging. Yeah, you know, they're just about. It's like that fascio thing. I'm I'm sorry, I've just come. But they've not. They've not. They're just. They've not. They've not. They're just not, about no, to. But no, no. I'm holding it back. So uh, I'm pretty sure Emma Watson must have also been to the the William Shatner School of Acting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I can certainly see that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think of any other any other actors, especially that... when Captain Kirk said Spark. You know, it says Spark. He's like, oh, oh, Spark. You know, it's very <laughs> please. 
sit. Yeah, it's very edgy acting. Yeah. <laughs> Captain's log. Oh. Uh, let, let's talk about the film a little bit now as well, because I think we've we've got over so, some points. It could just go on and on and on. Yeah, because the production of the film is a, is a real maze. Um, I yeah. mean, you could talk about the effects. I mean, the effects are a feature film in their in, in entirety, you know, like the fact that they had... Yeah. To be honest, with, with the effects, it sounds like a similar situation to Star Trek V, but was been rectified, because they had yes. um, a situation where they had... Um, I don't know what it is with companies that are called associates. Uh, they don't seem to do very well. So the, for this film, they had a company called Abel and Associates rather than yeah. Farron and Associates doing the effects. And they spent almost a year and ended up with one shot that was usable. So uh, they, yeah. they chucked them out and got Douglas Trumbull instead. Who had already turned them down as well by that point. <laughs> yeah. It sounded like Paramount turned down his film offer as punishment which is another reason why we've only got two Douglas Trimble films yeah but ended up giving him all the money in the world to do this so it's like oh no I think he had very like interesting relationships with studios um because he had such a reputation for doing effects but wanted to be a director he couldn't be taken seriously as a director and he is one of those like the greatest directors that never was like he he had the potential there to be one of the greats but for one reason or another was never given the real opportunity yeah. or fell out of love with the uh, with the profession for other reasons. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Brainstorm could easily yeah. be its own episode. That is... Um, I think so. Yeah. It's, it, there's, there's so much to talk about with Brainstorm. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, and, and even then, like, the effects ended up being done by Douglas Trumbull and then also John Dykstra as well because there yeah. were so many shots... There's, there's so many effects in this film that it had to be everything had to be subcontracted out as well, and so yeah, I think the cost of effects was was rather large. So we could like say talk about that all day. Yeah, there is more to do with um, like the making of the film itself, how Robert Wise was at one point kind of pushed out of the film as it went through production. We can talk about the special effects as well, but I think these things will just naturally come up anyway yeah, when we start yeah. to discuss our own thoughts of the film and andy i'm gonna hand it over to you as well so once more to put it out there we have watched the director's cut version and the most recent director's cut version as well the 4k remastering and what is your opinion of star trek the motion picture as it exists now i mean for me I, i quite like it but for me it's one of those films where its greatest strength also becomes its greatest weakness and we, we mentioned it at the start, and it it's the the slow pace and grandeur yeah. that is on on display, which is great. It really leans into that two thousand and one. I'd say more so than Close Encounters. It's more more two thousand and one uh, in that in that regard, pacing wise. And it is a, a a real marvel to behold, you know, especially when you're dealing with all the special effects and everything. Yeah. But it does rob the story of a lot of its urgency. Mm-hmm. And the the biggest proponent of that is the the dry dock sequence. The, the dry dock sequence is the <laughs> it kind of epitomizes the strengths and weaknesses of the film. Yes. Because within the story, you are dealing with. You know, they've not got much time. They've got to get going. But there's still time for a five-minute flyby of the Enterprise. 
Uh, yeah, so, yeah. For, for old time's sake. For old time's sake, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is weird that Kirk is constantly like, we only have three days. <laughs> we only have two days. And it's like, well, let's spend the next four hours just <laughs> flying by this ship. And, and you know, it's oh, beautiful ship. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, we've got five hours to get going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody did explain, like uh, describe it to me today as starship porn. Yeah, and yeah. It totally is. Yeah. I mean, I will say... Yes, it is a slow film. Yes, it is lacking urgency and tension. It's more of a mystery. Yeah. But it is a film that I have grown to love. I mean, I've watched it twice in the last two days. I was originally going to watch the um, the theatrical version of the film yesterday to to gain that, that knowledge. But I put it on with my wife and we soon flipped over back to the uh, director's cut and watched that. I understand why it wasn't as well received on its original release, especially the theatrical version of that film. Mm. But as it is, it's a kind of welcome oddity now. Yeah, yeah. Like, there are very few films that are actually like it, especially in the Star Trek series, and yet it still has a lot of the uh, the, the core proponents of Star Trek in terms of, like, uh, what works about the cast and and in the writing as well, the exploration of grand sci-fi ideas. Rather than it being essentially like, which is a shame that the series became more about like space battles. And as much as I love Wrath of Khan and I love Wrath of Khan, it kind of like set the series up ever since they've been trying to capture that lightning in a bottle of making Wrath of Khan again, even as recently as Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it, it's no fault to Wrath of Khan, this. Yeah, it, it's strange as well. Like, I understand it as well, but I don't understand the feeling that it doesn't feel like Star Trek because you can kind of argue that on a, um, on a character level because, yeah, they're probably the, the characters are a little bit restrained because of the style mm-hmm. that they've gone for. But in terms of the ideas and the science and everything, yeah. uh, it's very Star Trek. So I don't really understand that. And it's also, it's like, it's almost like in the title as well, the fact that they called it Star Trek, the motion picture. It's like they're going for this prestige cinema approach. Yeah. Right down to the fact that they have an overture at the start of the film. It's it, They've really gone for that kind of... I mean, it's, it surprises me in a way that the film's, one, not longer, and two, doesn't have an intermission because they've really gone down that road of we're going to make this yes, epic cinema, yeah. you know, David Lean-style, Stanley Kubrick-style film. It's almost too short for an overture, but yeah. I'm glad it's there because that is one of the best Jerry Goldsmith pieces oh. of music and I'm glad it's just given its its moment to to shine. We'll have an hour of this podcast dedicated to talking about Jerry Goldsmith's score, uh, of course. Yeah. But <laughs> Steven Spielberg has said it about Jaws and that um, the music is 50% of the reason why that film works. Well, that works for this film as well. Jerry yeah. Goldsmith is 50% of the reason why this film worked for me. Yeah. But even to talk about where you were coming from with this in, in regards to like the characters not quite being the same, they're a lot more restrained. I get that. But I think there was a um, an expectation amongst fans that these characters would be in the same place that we left them. And I guess because as well that the original series had only grown in appreciation and the the ratings for it had only grown in the years since for some people it didn't feel like there had been a 10 year gap they had only just found the series a few years ago or that Mm. type of thing yeah so when we come to this film and suddenly all of the characters well most of the characters are in completely different places and reconciling 
the character they was with where they are now and the stories that have happened in the interim. Talking specifically of Spock as well, that he is somebody who has left Starfleet and gone on his own journey in the interim and essentially arrives as a different character and slowly finds his way back to being the Spock we know and love. I, I love that arc. Yeah. Like, yeah. what do you do with those characters if you don't give them something to, to overcome or to think about or to contemplate? And I think there was this kind of, like, expectation that they would just be ready-made like they were in the original series. Yeah, I mean, God, we have the same problem with uh, Star Wars. Don't say those words. I mean... You'll bring them You'll bring them to the podcast. I mean, fan expectation is uh, a real tricky thing to navigate anyway. Because yeah. what do you do with that, like... Do you pander to the fans and, and just get called out for being not doing anything progressive or just being mediocre? Or do you do yeah. something challenging and piss them off? So, yeah, it's really tricky. <laughs> That's it. it. It really is because, I mean, if you challenge them too hard, you burn your bridge. If you pander too too much, people feel, you know, it's cheap. And... You gave me what I wanted. I'm disappointed. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's strange with this film, but I really appreciate everything that they've done to try and move it on and, and make something out of it that works on the big screen. One thing I will ask of you, we've talked about today how this particular film has its beginnings in television in regards to it being originally conceived as a pilot for yeah. Phase 2. Does it feel like to you that it was an hour-long TV episode that has been stretched to fit the format of a film screenplay? <laughs> essentially the the demand of two hours i mean it, in a way it does yeah it definitely feels like the kind of plot that you would see on tv but in a smaller scale but it's difficult because it's one of those films where you could get you could say that oh if they'd sped it up a little bit and made it maybe like oh it could easily work fine as like an hour and 40 minute film if you'd sped the pace up and, yeah. and had a bit more urgency to it i think it's one of those films where they just about got away with it in that regard i think that would have worked for audiences in 1979 but i think people have come round to this film for what it is in modern day in 2022 yeah star trek fans that like this film like it because of i mentioned this on on hellraiser what people saw as faults back in 1979 are now the feature of the film i was thinking about this yesterday actually and i was thinking about it it's one of those films it's probably better to appreciate in the context of it where it is in the series and the fact that we have more films like Wrath of yes, Khan yeah. and Voyage Home and Undiscovered Country and all the things that followed. But if you viewed it in the context of this being the only Star Trek film that, that was that was made, obviously back if you if you plant yourself back to nineteen seventy-nine, this is yeah. Star Trek the Motion Picture. It's the very first Star Trek film. I can definitely see why it would have been seen as being disappointing because at that point we mm -hmm. didn't have Wrath of Khan or any of the films that followed and it's very different yeah. from the TV series. Yeah, I can I can kind of see both viewpoints and I can definitely see why people would have viewed it as disappointing. I think even if the director's edition had come out at the time, it would have still been seen as disappointing, I think, because of yeah. what it decided to do versus what people wanted it to do and where it subsequently went. We talk about films that are, not say giving into fan demand, but are catering to fans in a very mm. specific way. Wrath of Khan did essentially what Rise of Skywalker could not do, where it followed a somewhat divisive previous film, yeah. and it followed it up with something that was designed specifically to be more 
favorable to the fans and what they desired from star trek but managed to cater to that in a way that didn't feel cheap or pandering like wrath of khan managed to find that middle ground that very few films and like franchises rarely do yeah wrath of khan's strange though because it, it recaptured what people liked about star trek but by throwing out Star Trek, <laughs> in a way. Yes, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of the things that that film does, you would not see in the original series anyway. So it no. kind of replaced it with something that was equally as exciting and compelling, but it, it's not Star Trek, the original series either, even and though no, it still has ties to it. Like, like, you know, the whole naval thing that Maya introduced in that film. That's what I was going to mention, yeah. It, it plays more like a naval battle, like an, yeah. a, a, like an at-sea adventure than it does a um, a grand sci-fi film. I know that it, they, they kind of give it the backdrop of the Genesis probe and everything like that, which does feel like big sci-fi stuff. But really, it's about a naval battle at sea. Yeah. Whereas this, like Star Trek The Motion Picture, is like, this is grand sci-fi ideas. And I, I, I love the story behind it as well, like the mystery of what this energy cloud is. Yeah. And it's not diminished by the fact that you've seen a film once before, you know, it's Vija is a, you know, Voyager 6. It's not diminished by that. I love this figuring out of the uh, from the characters of what this thing represents and is and what it needs. And... I, I'm I'm almost amazed to find out after the fact that it had such a troubled production in terms of the writing mm. during the filming because for me uh, yeah sure it's slow but it still feels like the script itself is quite tight in terms of the character arcs in terms of the individual character arcs and how they coincide with what the Vija probe is. I mean, we have the Decker character as well, who kind of learns that the rational option isn't always the right option, mm. which is something that Vija learns. We have with Spock that what his people see as flaws in terms of having emotions, having bond, having love between people is something to be embraced rather than pushed away and suppressed which is something that Vija lacks as well. It's it's a cold and distant entity. And, you know, we have Kirk himself trying to find his place in the world. All of these feel like integral to what the Vija probe is. And yet to find out that the script was like, oh yeah, we half wrote it and we, we, didn't, yeah. we didn't have the other half of the script. We wrote it on set. It doesn't feel like a film that's been written on set, that's been found its way through. It's one of those rare examples where it's just come together for me. Yeah, and it's also interesting as well where they went with that because although the motion picture feels very divorced from Wrath of Khan by a lot of fans, Wrath of Khan continues those themes in a way, especially yeah. with you know Kirk finding his place within Starfleet and Spock's journey, which comes to its logical conclusion, pun there, um, <laughs> it, with, with his death at the end of that film. It feels very much a consequence of his encounter with Vija in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can completely understand why they wouldn't reference it in Wrath of Khan because of the perceived failure of this film, but it definitely feels like they do follow on quite well uh, from each other, even though stylistically they're very different films. Yeah. Because, yeah, I was reading it the other day that this film is supposed to take place four years after the original series, even though it's about ten. It feels more. It feels like more. Yeah, it, I, I, which kind of didn't make sense for me. But, yeah, <laughs> that's why you get things like Shatner wearing a corset and stuff <laughs> like that. There's also things in the film that you can kind of feel like, ah, oh, they tried that, but that that didn't work, so they rectified that with the next film. I mean, the the, the big one for me 
obviously outside of the film's style and pacing is um, things like the uniforms and the colour palette and things like that where it's very bland. Yes. That's one of the, the negatives I can take out of this film where I feel like when you're on the ship, the Enterprise, because the characters are attired in the same colours that the uh, ships, you know, they they don't really stand out from the sets. What I imagine would have been a, a cinematographer's nightmare. It's far too restrained. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they to blend into the background. I mean, I don't think it's the actual design of the costumes. I think it's just the colours that they use. Yeah, and when you look at Star Trek, the original series, in terms of the vibrant colours, I know that with it being like one of the first colour TV shows of its like, like they really wanted to make yeah, it colourful. Yeah. And that was very much a feature of that show. And this is a lot more muted than that. I like that it kind of like it plays a um, a juxtaposition against everything that we see within Vija anyway, yeah. in terms of like the colour, the, the vibrancy. But it, as you say, it does make the issue of of making the characters stand out in a dynamic way on the bridge far more complicated for a, a cinematographer. If they'd had those designs of costumes but then kept the bright colours, it would have worked a lot better. I, I agree wholeheartedly. One thing that I will say for its favour, though, in terms of the costumes themselves, we've spoken about Gene Roddenberry being a bit of a horn dog that likes to get the shortest of skirts on, on women. There is only really one very short skirt in this film. Yeah. And um, that is the one that the um, the Ilea probe wears yeah. later on in the film. However, there is a, a lot of dong on display in oh, this yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of dong. Like for for somebody for a horn dog <laughs> who is very interested in women and something of a womanizer, he made sure that we could see the outlines of the veins on Decker's dick. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty Decker. <laughs> I like that there's something there for men and there's something there for women. You know, there's something for everybody to enjoy. The whole family. Uh, Gran- granny, come in. Uh, it's truly a family experience, this yeah, one. Yeah, come in, Granny. We're watching the scene where Spock inspects the orifice. <laughs> and obviously, Kirk is there to pull him out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention as well, we get uh, direct inspiration for David Cronenberg's The Fly in this film as well. Oh, for sure. With the, with the whole transporter hiccup, which is quickly forgotten afterwards. Uh, <laughs> kind yes. of makes me laugh. But at the end of the film's running there, it's like we had we had two casualties, uh, Dakar and Alia. It's like, what about the other poor fuckers that were, you know... <laughs> Did they ever make it aboard? That's the thing to ask. But yeah, they've certainly Maybe. been forgotten. I'm relinquishing all responsibility. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. That wasn't me. <laughs> no. But um, Then we get that line. What we had didn't live long. Fortunately, yeah. That is perhaps one of my favourite scenes in all Star Trek history. <laughs> it's so fucking horrifying. Yeah, I, I think it's good as well. I think it, it demonstrates how uh, you've got this kind of utopian society, but then things within it don't always work so well yeah and you do end up with consequences like this yeah is there anything comparable in the original series like that i don't think there is not in regards to that but we do have like the obvious red shirt thing you know yeah yeah yeah. the one thing i will say about like gene roddenberry in terms of his approach to utopia is that you can see it in this film and you can see it in the next generation as well but the approach of starfleet uh, in terms of mentality to the idea of death is completely different than where we're at now. Mm. It's expected that people will die in this conquest, but death means something completely different in this utopia. He mentioned it was just one of those things where people get over death a lot quicker because it's it's just simply an expectation that that will happen to some people. 
and it's kind of demanded of people within Starfleet itself. So there is a slight darkness there to this utopia as well. And we see it when um, Ilya dies as well. Like people seem to get over that pretty quickly. But yeah. I think they come to understand that perhaps there's more of her consciousness existing here, maybe. I do think that that's an idea that gets completely changed by Nicholas Meyer in the in the next film because that, that deals heavily with, oh, 100%, with yeah. death and its consequences and musings on mortality and things so it's almost like the, yeah I, you can it's one of those things where whenever nicholas meyer's involved gene roddenberry is like just oh, i know yeah there's a real butting of heads there as well and i like i really like nicholas meyer's uh work on on star trek as well but it, it, have you still not seen star trek 6 uh, no i haven't no oh now because it's out on now it's out on 4k now the um director's edition isn't it go and watch it gareth go and watch it well i've been saving ourselves in case we do oh. it as a podcast episode so i can i can watch it fresh i'm saving myself i'm saving myself Not fucking mormons <laughs> <laughs> well i do actually have it on the 4k now but yeah. fuck paramount for releasing it in the pattern that they did so they released like star trek one to four as a boxer, yeah, and then they released the director's cut separately of the motion picture, and then they released later on a box set of the director's cut and one to six as a package, <laughs> which is just so infuriating. Still no, still no special edition of Star Trek Five. No, no, still no special edition. Still waiting. Yeah, still waiting. <laughs> Never happened. I actually think that was like one of my first memories of Star Trek was watching Kirk fall off the Yosemite El Capitan. Yeah, definitely. I don't think I mentioned this from Star Trek Five. Actually, there was a hi-fi shop in Bolton. I love how all your stories start with like in, in Trafford. There was this yeah. little shop in, in Bolton. Our friends that live in like California. <laughs> there was a big hi-fi <laughs> shop in Bolton that I used to go to when I was little, and the the opening sequence of Kirk climbing Yosemite was one of those uh, demonstration. Yeah, might have even been a, a laser disc demonstration because I know they used to use the Return of Jedi end battle they used that yeah. as a laser disc uh, demonstration back then but definitely the uh kirk climbing yosemite was frequently used in that shop so that's one mm-hmm. of my big memories of just being a, it being a demonstration video <laughs> <laughs> so, a demo yeah look how shit this looks on this huge screen you can really see the outlines of his corset yeah <laughs> thinking about it like because in its original theatrical form it's strange because i did i did actually go back and watch the theatrical uh a little bit in preparation as well as watching the director's edition they're not that dissimilar to each other to be honest that the main thing that the director's edition does is add a bit more clarity to uh, actually what's going on it doesn't really solve any pacing issues but it just gives more clarity that's it there are a lot of corrections with regards to special effects and um, complete redoing of some special effects Um, but in regards to the actual edits they mentioned in the documentary i was watching that there is something like even a 90 or 120 edits or something like that new cuts in the film Mm. however it's only three minutes longer yeah. And it's a, so just like minor tweaks and tight, I say tightening. Yeah. That's probably not the word to no. use. No. Um, but it's all just tweaks here and there, and then the obvious massive overhauling of the special effects. I did look at some of the original effects as well as they appeared in the theatrical version, and some of them are absolutely fantastic still. Others did need work. You yeah. know, like there's a lot of like the matte paintings in the backgrounds that have been um, overdone. And. To be honest, I love what they did with the director's cut restoration. I liked what they did in 2000. I really particularly like what they've done with this 
restoration as well for 4K. Yeah, yeah. It looks the best it's ever looked before. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, we, we've spoken very briefly as well about the music, um, the fact that this film had an overture, but uh, I do want to speak about Jerry Goldsmith's music and kind of how influential he became to the soundscape of Star Trek Yeah, yeah. Uh, from this point onwards. The fact that this is like the beginning of the next generation theme and I, 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 the idea as well of coming into this film with uh, Star Trek. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reframe that and not <laughs> coming start into with coming film. into the film. Yeah, we always end it with this problem. <sighs> coming into the film. Yeah, and I always say that as well. Yeah. So especially this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so many orifices yeah. to explore. At this point, I've been where many men have been before. <laughs> so looking at this film and in terms of the history of Star Trek. For Jerry Goldsmith to approach this and say, I'm not going to use the Star Trek original series theme, apart from a few subtle moments here and there, that is quite a decision to make, and normally one that wouldn't come come off, in my opinion, because, let's face it, that Star Trek theme is iconic. But then he comes up with that Enterprise theme, yeah. that new like game known as the Next Generation theme, where it's just kind of, like, changed the game entirely. I can't believe, like, one, the balls that he had to do that. Yeah, yeah. And and two, that it, like, it all came together in such a wonderful way. And to the point in which, when it came to the next generation, they did actually recreate a new version of, of a next generation theme that eventually went unused because it essentially sounded like a royalty-free version of this theme. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, why not just use this theme then? When you think about it in that way, and if you, if you cast your mind back to 1979 and think about it in that context, whereas, yeah, he's literally just replaced the main theme, mm -hmm. but with one that's just as good, if not better. Yeah, exactly. And, and that theme is just as synonymous with Star Trek as the original theme is anyway now, mm -hmm. because of it's probably mainly because of its use as the Next Generation's theme. Yeah, I think Jerry Goldsmith now has probably the biggest influence on Star Trek musically more so than any other composer now because of um yeah because it was reused for the next generation and also his uh fantastic deep space nine theme as well uh which is yeah. pretty much maybe doesn't top it but it's almost as good mm -hmm. and I, I i just love the uh um, the, the soundtrack for this film is just incredible and it's one of those film soundtracks that you can just listen to in isolation and and, and get lots out of it. You know, it's one of those film scores that works great on its own. I, I like that that like a uh, guitar string sound. Like uh, it's almost like somebody going up and down the threads of some sort of uh, guitar string. That sound that he provides for uh, the energy cloud. It's got for, a name for VG. I know it's probably not a guitar string itself, but it's about I fifteen feet long or something. Apparently, so. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. I imagine it is. Like it sounds like it, but it's. It, it has such an identity. God forbid if someone uh, listens to this podcast out of context. It's about 15 feet long, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and you feel every inch. Yeah. Um, I could feel it at the back of my teeth. Oh. But yeah, apparently there's a, a funny thing with um, Jerry Goldsmith, because he was attached to the film before Robert Wise. And <laughs> they asked Robert Wise, like, would you mind working with Jerry Goldsmith? Uh, you know, and he was like, hell no. <laughs> He's the best person I've worked with, sort of thing. Like, because I think he'd worked with him on a previous film. Oh yeah, he worked with him on the Sam Pebbles, and he yeah he replied, "Hell no, he's great." <laughs> and he considered <laughs> his work with Goldsmith as one of the best relationships he ever had with the composer. All right, mate. You know, 
<laughs> one, one thing I did realise as well was that this theme came as a last minute because yeah, um, the, the previous Drydock theme he'd written one and then it was like oh now we'll do something else I think Robert Wise said so what's the theme for this film and Goldsmith was like well there's a love theme but I suppose there isn't like a big kind of unifying theme to go through it so he was like well I want a theme I want a theme for the film. So Goldsmith went away and came back. And I think uh, Robert Weiss, he said that Robert Weiss said, why didn't you do this at the beginning? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> but I love these like little moments where out of adversity comes something kind of like amazing in filmmaking. And it kind of happened a lot more back then. It doesn't so much happen anymore. Yeah, yeah. I don't, don't think we can kind of like underplay his contribution to Star Trek as a series because of his work. Um, he, he jumped back and forth with the films all the way through to... Was it, didn't he do the score to Star Trek Nemesis as well? That was actually his penultimate film. His last actual full-credited film was... Wait. <laughs> was uh, Looney, Looney Tunes, Tunes back in action. <laughs> yeah, but the film prior to that was Star Trek Nemesis. He, he left on a high. <laughs> yeah. I think we were talking about Jerry Goldsmith. It's like, yeah, rejected, 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 <laughs> rejected. <laughs> so many rejected scores. It's quite funny. Especially in the 90s. The 90s was his worst period, I think, for having rejected scores. Yeah. One thing as well that I wanted to mention was that I um, I instantly thought, why didn't he win the Oscar for this score? It's absolutely amazing while I was watching it again. I was, and I was, I was thinking, there must have been something, like, truly special released that year. You know, something to overtake it. When I looked on the Oscars website, it's a film I've never even heard of. It's called, like, A Little Romance, and there's a George Roy Hill movie and the score is by George Delarue. All right. <laughs> Never heard of it. I mean, if you look at the Oscars results, like, back, you know, all the way back through time, they're not great measures of what was actually going on in film. Yeah, it's not really a great indicator of quality, the Oscars. It's more of an indicator of immediate popularity amongst, amongst Oscar voters. It's very much a love-in. Yeah, definitely. But I just I discovered the name of that instrument. It was called the... Um... A quasi-quartang. <laughs> <laughs> it was it called... does sound like the name of that instrument. <laughs> it was called. Uh, it's called the blaster beam. Oh, wow, that is like truly a sci-fi. It is actually. Yeah, it's like a, it's kind of like a very long guitar inside a chamber kind of thing. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, it is like fifteen feet long. It's one of those things where it's like you find a sound that represents a character. Yeah, it's, it's synonymous with Vija. Of course, yeah. You know, you hear that sound. It's Vija. The score does so much to make a presence in the film that doesn't really have a voice apart from the probe. It gives it so much character. And, you know, the probe doesn't really turn up until quite far into the film. And it's already built up so much mystery by that point anyway. It's, it's, it's just worked yeah. so well. I love the romanticism involved with it as well, with the with the probe. I know we talk about, like, the sexual imagery that's on display, but I love the sense of, like... The film does have a very romantic eye when it comes to looking at both the Enterprise itself and when it comes to the probe later on as well, that it's a satellite returning home. It's a something that has gained sentience and it's returning to its home planet. Yeah. That feels intrinsically Star Trek to me. Yeah. I love what it brings, this sense of uh, mythos and pathos to the entity itself that I think, like I say, it. It's not diminished on repeat viewings as well. That the fact no. that you know the mister, you know everything behind the mystery. In fact, it's kind of like elevated as well. Yeah, I think for me, like the the big Achilles heel though is is just the lack of urgency. Yes, there is a countdown, 
but it's not implemented so well within the context of the of the actual plot. To be honest, at one point you heard a countdown, and I think like like the last time you hear the countdown, it's like Chekhov saying thirteen minutes. Yeah, and I think that's the last that you hear of it. Yeah. One thing I do want to mention about Chekhov as well, it kind of makes sense now that you've said that it's supposed to be based four years in the future rather than like ten. Mm. But considering that he's supposed to be and it's still considered as being like the kid amongst the crew, the naive boy wonder, you know, yeah, yeah, he he looks like the forty year old boy wonder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah, he looks good, but he's still playing it like this wide eyed child who's been allowed to to play with his toys on the uh, on the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think because there's so much time dedicated to Decker and Ilya, it's mainly like. Kirk, Spock, Decker, and Ilya are the main characters, and then everything else. Yeah. I mean, McCoy to an extent, but there's lots of shots of where it just cuts to McCoy. He doesn't have anything to say. Or no, no, he just has a look. Um, and then, yeah, literally the crew members are just doing their jobs at this point. Yeah. To an extent, Scotty, actually, because he has that moment with Kirk with the with the dry dock. Yeah, yeah. After that point, gets gets a little bit forgotten about. But how do you balance that as well, like on a on a movie level? It's difficult. But even so, even though some of the characters don't have a lot to do, that chemistry is still there. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's all there. And it's something that cannot be underestimated because I do feel like all the other Star Trek shows haven't quite reached that level in terms of the chemistry mm-hmm. between the cast and the, the the genuine friendship that you can feel on screen. Yeah, Next Generation is probably the one that gets the closest, but still I don't think it quite matches I think partly because of the issues that they had in the first couple of seasons of that of that show. I mean, it sounds like as well from the next generation that they had something of a turbulent time with yeah the cast, especially with regards to Patrick Stewart as well. Like he was constantly a will he won't he return entity on that show, <laughs> and yeah. um, it feels like he wanted it to be something that it wasn't. And everybody seems to have different ideas of what the Star Trek show should be. Yeah, and as much as I love Star Trek: The Next Generation. It doesn't feel like it has that glue between the characters that the original series has between these people that clearly enjoy just being around each other. Yeah. Apart from George Takei, who had a terrible time with, with William Shatner in real life. Yeah. yeah. He, and who looks positively unhinged in this. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he looks like he's just killed somebody and he's yeah. trying to act normal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all the more prevalent when, you, you know, the, the modern Star Trek shows that don't really care about that at all, <laughs> to be honest. I, I suppose in a way as well, like, The Next Generation works because Jean-Luc has this distance from the rest of the crew that, that is played upon as well through that series. So it kind of works in that regard as well. So I guess just before we move on to the stats and facts of uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, what is your overall conclusion in regards to this film? It seems like it's a, a positive one, but it's just lacking that urgency for you. Yeah, because I was thinking I was going to mention this before, but when my dad had the original one on video, he had all the the Star Trek films on video, and I watched many of them repeatedly, especially Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, Undiscovered Country. Uh, I'd say probably Voyage Home less so and Star Trek V less so. I think partly because my my dad didn't like Star Trek IV that much, so I didn't watch it that much. I was very, you know, yeah. when you're influenced by your parents' tastes as well, like he was like, yeah, mm-hmm. I won't watch that one because my dad doesn't like it. I think I only ever watched the motion picture once on video before the director's edition came out, and I don't remember particularly enjoying it 
because of its pacing and and the kind of heady i think it's one it's not really a space adventure film is it really it's it's something more cerebral than that yeah yeah it's more contemplative it's so it, it, it's a less family friendly version of star trek if you if you know what yes I, mean. I would agree with that as well but i mean not in the way that picard is <laughs> <laughs> but it's very much like reaching for that uh stanley kubrick or like almost like arthur c clark thing i mean it's very telling that they did have people like isaac asimov on the film as consultants yeah. and things yeah so that is definitely something that sets it apart from the rest of the series you know before and after but yeah i still enjoy it when i'm watching it but it's one of those films where you just go back to very sporadically it's not one of those films you can just put on of yeah. an evening you have to be in a certain mood to watch it i 100 percent agree with you on that i mean one thing that i have come to the conclusion of whilst i watched this film for the second time in two days is i think this might be if not my favorite one of my favorite star trek films now yeah i don't know yeah. how it happened or when it happened but it just kind of happened i like its pace i do agree it's lack of urgency i like what it's about but yeah, I, I love the ideas that it's dealing with, these grand sci-fi Star Trek ideas. Um, however, I also agree with you that although I might call it my favourite Star Trek film now, it, it isn't the one that I will go back to immediately for like a rewatch or that type of thing. Mm. I have watched it twice in two days now, and that'll be enough for a, for a while. Yeah, I might even watch Wrath of Khan a couple of times between now and then. Yeah, yeah. But when I do come back around to it, I'm still kind of like blown away by what it is. And I think that's helped very much by this new version of the film as well, where the uh, the kind of special effects and, you know, the, the, the image is given kind of the, 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 the love it deserves. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I'm very much a... Um, I, I would consider myself a devotee to this film, and I guess that's very much because it is an oddity in the Star Trek canon as well because of what has come next. There's plenty of great Star Trek films. There's plenty of bad Star Trek films. Um, but none of them are quite like the motion picture. No. Okay, so moving over to the stats and facts, I'm going to begin with the, um, the critical reception to this film. So the film actually has, according to Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a 53% tomato meter reading which is uh, very much firmly within the, the rotten. And it's the critical consensus is that it's uh, featuring a patchwork script and dialogue-heavy storyline whose biggest villain is a cloud. Star Trek <laughs> The Motion Picture is a less-than-auspicious debut for, for, for the franchise. <laughs> not very fair at all. However, somebody who was quite positive to the film on its uh, initial release is Roger Ebert, who gave the film three out of four stars. Of course. <laughs> film made for him <laughs> yeah he does seem to respond to these these type of films he says uh, such reservations aside star trek the motion picture is probably about as good as we could have expected it lacks the dazzling brilliance and originality of 2001 which was an extraordinary one-of-a-kind film but on its own terms it's a very well-made piece of work with an interesting premise the alien spaceship turns out to come from a mechanical or computer civilization, one produced by artificial intelligence, and yet poignantly human, in the sense that it has come all this way to seek out the secrets of its own origins, as we might. There is, I suspect, a sense in which you can be too sophisticated for your own good when you see a movie like this. Some of the early reviews seem to be pretty blasé, as if the critics didn't allow themselves to relish the film before racing out to pigeonhole it. My inclination, as I slid down in my seat and the stereo sound surrounded me, 
uh, was to relax and let the movie give me a good time. I did, and it did. Which I think is a great review, to be fair. That's showing its age when the stereo surrounded me. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I wanted to, to just offset that with an Empire review. They gave it two out of five stars, saying the big screen is where none of them had gone before. Yeah. Right, okay. We move on to the audience scores for this film as well. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 42% rating. And on IMDb, the IMDb score is 6.4 out of 10. Mm-hmm. However, I did mention earlier that that has improved overall since the IMDb records began in 2004, where the film actually had a 5.7 rating mm. in 2004 when uh, the ratings first came about. So that that... And if you watch it over the years, that mark is just constantly moving upwards. And I think that's just indicative of how the film is coming to be seen by Star Trek fans and yeah. people finding the film in general as well. Maybe as we continue to get more bad Star Trek as well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, yeah, the motion picture's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think we are probably in one of the worst Star Trek periods of time in terms of uh, yeah. where we are with it as a series I, I guess we should mention that star trek picard has been nothing but a disappointment but who could have expected anything more from the mind of alex kurtzman and fucking akiva goldsmith or whatever his yeah. name is they need to be in like movie jail forever now <laughs> yeah star trek discovery is just the complete opposite it's just got no real idea of what it wants to be and the cast is just has just has no cohesiveness whatsoever no chemistry whatsoever no no okay i watched two series of that and i couldn't tell you who any of the characters are what any of their names are i just remember one of them is doug jones and he's probably the best (laughs) yeah that's all i can remember yeah and uh, so but yeah speaking in regards now to the box office for this film as we mentioned the budget was uh 44 million which was actually far above what was allocated for the actual production there's a lot that's been enveloped into that whether it's phase two or like the redoing of special effects as well yeah yeah. it's certainly inflated far above what it should have been yeah and even then the studio had earmarked like the the maximum that should have been spent as 35 million so it went 10 million above that it still opened at number one with 12 million dollars it grossed overall 82 million dollars domestically which is still quite, you know, quite a success. And overall, um, according to Wikipedia, it made $139 million worldwide. I think still makes it adjusted for inflation one of the stronger Star Trek films at the box office. Yeah, I've just uh, calculated what uh, $44 million would be in today's <laughs> money. It's about $180 million. But uh, it's quite a large budget. Uh, I it mean, is quite... Not now, but... It, well, it's a mid-budget film now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, 44 million in, in 1979 was a fuck ton of money. Absolutely, yeah. That's like it's, it's like a ridiculous amount of money for a film. When you know most films back then were you're talking 10 to 20. I was going to say you could make like two and a half aliens films. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, even if we adjust for inflation, the uh, the overall worldwide box office, which I know it doesn't quite work this way, but it made like 573 million dollars. So I'd say even with that, it's still a success. Like it, it, it certainly is deemed that, and it's still one of the better Star Trek films in terms of box office. But like they did certainly overspend on that budget. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's everything with regards to Star Trek. Um, I, I will say it's certainly a film that I would recommend, but you certainly have to be in a place. Yeah, I, I think you have to meet this film halfway. You have to be, like, ready f- and adjusted for the type of film that it is, especially if you're coming at it having seen all of the other Star Trek films. Like, if you yeah. know, if you have this preconceived idea of what a Star Trek film should be, from everything that's come later, and especially from this current crop of Star Trek, this is the polar opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> even though it still, like, has many... At its core, is still very Star Trek at heart. And even more so when you're comparing it to the, um, the sort of J.J. Abrams uh, Star Trek trilogy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> it's just... Uh, it, I mean, it does demonstrate how broad Star Trek has, uh, you know, has become, and, and in a way, it's more versatile than, than its oft-comparison uh, franchise, Star Wars, in that regard. Yeah. Um, so that that's definitely a positive that you can take from Star Trek. That it's with both good and bad things that have come out of it. Star Trek is a much more flexible franchise than than its rival. I mean, with Star Trek, with the J.J. Abrams version of it. Like that was J.J. Abrams was very vocal about the fact that he said he was making a Star Trek film in the Star Wars mold. Yeah, and I'd say that okay, so we've we've proven now in terms of whether or not audiences are on board for that. That yes, they would be on board for a Star Trek film made more like Star Wars. But I don't think Star Wars could ever fit the Star Trek mold. No, <laughs> like they couldn't make a Star Wars film like Star Trek. No. Or TV show, whatever they're making these days. I no. feel like it's far more rigid with Star Wars in general. I like Star Trek, and I like Star Trek Beyond. I hated Star Trek Into Darkness, and it's only... Nah, Star Trek Into Darkness can fuck off. <laughs> I also think, like, in regards to what J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek, if they had the foresight to know that Star Wars was going to come back, and it's kind of like in in, a, in such a way, yeah, I don't think they would have traded in the voice of the series for that. No, because they've no. essentially by making Star Trek like Star Wars, it's kind of lost its identity amongst the modern day cinematic landscape. And I think that's what they're struggling with yeah, now. I kind of don't know what it is. Yeah, now. <laughs> I don't know what it and is. And I, I think that's part of the struggle as well. Like, does Star Trek? have a place does this new star trek this new star warsy star trek have a place in a cinematic landscape where star and, and tv landscape where star wars is so dominant yeah i guess it does to some level but in terms of quality it's not there anymore it's just not there. i think the only the only way to do it would be to make it a film that's a clean slate maybe a lower budget mm-hmm. and do something that's that's much more heady uh, that doesn't rely yeah. on that kind of star wars kind of action tropes and do something yeah. that's a bit more thoughtful but for a lower budget i do think that's possible these days to do that and yeah. see where that goes you know basically just do an invisible man but with with star trek and, 100%, and just yeah. try and take it back to its core principles but have the monetary stakes lowered mm. to give it that kind of leeway to do so because it's gotten so muddled now uh with all these yeah. other series i think that's the only way forward and, and get fucking akiva goldsman and Alex Kurtzman yeah. far far away from anything. I, to do I think with it. like it, it needs to be a whole new producing crew. Well, just basically give it to some to some sci-fi writers. You know, you know, people actually write sci-fi. Exactly. You know, <laughs> I saw it on my Twitter page yesterday that it's now been eight years since Interstellar was released, and it's weird having watched this film and then having Interstellar immediately um, jump to mind 
that Interstellar feels like it's more akin to this type of film. Yeah, yeah. Because Interstellar is a film like about exploration. We see different types mm-hmm. of planets where different types of things happen. You know, it, it's less about like the uh, the bim bam smash, although it has these like beautiful like cinematic vistas or this kind of thing. It has that kind of grand idea. But I feel like uh, Star Trek needs to get to something like that again as well. Yeah. Like there's still space for those kind of big sci-fi films, and I think it needs to have that feeling again as as well of like the the, the kind of hopeful grand exploration of the unknown mm. rather than, you know, what, what things can we shoot at out in space. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's all we have to say on Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think it's a film that both of us would recommend. For our next episode, we're going to be... We're still staying in the sci-fi realm, but we're moving towards something a bit more animated, you might say, than this very slow Star Trek film. (laughs) Uh, And animated in a very literal sense, as we're watching Atlantis The Lost Empire, the uh, very much maligned Disney film that kind of put an end to Disney animation in general, (laughs) but we'll talk about that later. You know, it's all fun and games. But until then, I've been Gareth. And I'm logical. (laughs) I'm just going over to explore this orifice. Just dip a finger in first, you know. Gauge the temperature. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, we never got around to what what dick this would be, and I reckon this is a um, a long beige dick, uh, very (laughs) thick, and it's going very slowly very slowly into an orifice so yeah. uh yeah which uh it's is a expanding and contracting all the time yeah um so yeah that, that's what the star trek the motion picture would be they do seem to enter the uh, energy cloud via the rear yeah 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> we are now entering the pukadenas <laughs> oh dear see you next time live long and prosper <laughs>